Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. All right, all right, all right. So today on the show, I speak with Academy Award-winning actor and best-selling author Matthew McConaughey. Matthew first gained attention with his portrayal of Wooderson in Richard Linklater's comedy Dazed and Confused in 1993. Three years later, he rose to national prominence as a leading man with his breakthrough performance in A Time to Kill. And in the 2000s, of course, Matthew became an American heartthrob as the star in numerous rom-coms. But behind the bright lights, there was always a more introspective and philosophical side to Matthew, as reflected in his work over the last decade, which included his Oscar-winning performance as Ron Woodruff in Dallas Buyers Club. Throughout Matthew's life, he has embarked on myriad walkabouts, epic journeys both inward and outward that has taken him to the Amazon and through Mali in search of himself. He's always been a voracious writer, keeping journals since early adolescence. And in 2020, he published Green Lights, an autobiography based on an excavation of his lifetime of scribbling. Matthew spent 52 days in a self-imposed monasticism, pulling together stories, prescribes, places, people, and bumper stickers, and the result was a compendium that shot to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. In our conversation, Matthew recounts stories from the book and how he has learned to engineer green lights in his life. We spend considerable time talking about values, where they come from, and their potential utility to unite a nation that seems increasingly frayed and polarized. We discuss the balance between extroversion and introversion and the importance of solitude. Uh, this discussion was a lot of fun. Matthew has an effusive personality, infectious sense of humor, and a folk wisdom that made me feel right at home. And obviously, I am not alone. And apparently, his lilting drawl is also somewhat contagious, as you will hear. So, without further delay, here's my conversation with Matthew McConaughey.
Okay, here we go. Welcome, Matthew McConaughey, to the Commune Podcast. Matthew, thanks for being here. Good to be communing with you, sir. It's such a thrill and an honor to have you on the show, but I did have to forsake my hefty Oil of Mink sponsorship. <laughs> yeah, apparently they heard you were going to be on and, and pulled pulled their 10 bucks. I bet but they did. They know I'm still looking for them. I've, I've never given much credence to the ad-supported media model. Anyways, so since story takes such primacy in your book and in your life, and, and broadly I would categorize stories as vessels for values, and that's a topic that I want to excavate with you. But but to kick off the game, I, I wonder if you could recount the oil of mink story, <laughs> since it's it's both so hilarious and gives us a window into your family life growing up. Sure. So the year's like 1985. I'm 14, 15, going through adolescence. As one does, you get oily skin, you get a few pimples. Okay, no problem. Well, I get a few pimples and uh, it seems to be normal. But my, at the same time, my mother is peddling door to door this this product called Oil of Mink. And she's taking it herself. And the whole byline with this, this Oil of Mink product is you put it on your face. It will pull out all the impurities that you will ever have now and in the future. And you will end up with wonderful glowing skin and not another pimple in your life. Not another blemish, nothing. Well, mom's doing this and selling it door to door. And I'm starting to notice I've got a few extra pimples in my face and having nothing to do with the oil of mink, I bring it up to her. Mom, what are these pimples in my face? She goes like, oh yeah, that's normal. And then a the light goes off in her head. But why don't you try this oil of mink? Put it on your face. It'll pull out of the, all the impurities and your skin will be beautiful forever. I'm like, I'd love to. I start putting this oil of mink on every night, slathering it on my face. I wake up uh, the next few days, more pimples. A week later, a lot more pimples. Two weeks later, a whole lot more pimples. I go to my mom. I said, Mom, it seems to be working in reverse order. I got all these even five times more pimples than I had before. She's like, looks at me. She goes, no, that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to pull out all the impurities. I do it another week. I come back. Now I'm getting full-blown acne, like lumps on my face. When I wash my face with a washcloth, it's gross. Things bleed, et cetera. I go to my mom, she goes, well, let me call my boss, this lady, Elaine, who works my father. She comes over, the lady who got her on to selling the oil of mink door to door. She comes over and this Elaine looks at my face. She goes, wow, you sure do have a lot of impurities, young Matthew. And I'm like, okay. She goes, keep doing it. I keep doing it. A month goes by, now it's too much. I look like a different person. I go to the dermatologist without telling my mom, because um, mom didn't think I needed to go to the dermatologist. She just thought I needed to keep using oil of mink. And my oh, the dermatologist looks at my skin. He goes, what are you putting on that? And I pull out, I brought the bottle of oil of mink. He looks at it and he goes, no, 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 no. This is, this is for someone who's like 40 years and older. You're going through adolescence. Your pores are all open. This is clogging your pores. He says, if we don't get you on Accutane right now, you, if you go another two weeks on this product, you're going to have those, those ice pick holes, whatever they're called, in your cheeks for the rest of your life. We got it. I'm glad you came in. Let's get you on it. Well, we get on the Accutane, you know, that takes a year, uh, et cetera, et cetera, to do. It all worked. In the meantime, though, right before the Accutane worked, my dad, who was always an, uh, uh, an opportunist, is like, God damn, son, that thing made you look at you. You look like a different kid. Your face is all pocked up. Yeah, we, we, we're going to sue this company. So, 
Yeah, right, we're going to sue him as him and his lawyer decide $35,000 we can get from that company for 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 all this uh, problem with my face, but mainly as the lawyer says because of my emotional distress that I must have gone through, right? And that lawyer sits yes. me down while I've got all these pimples. They're like, I mean, is your confidence lower? I'm like, well, yes, sir. He's like, hmm, hmm. He goes, how's it going with the girls? I go, not as well. I go, hmm, hmm. And all of a sudden he looks at my dad. He goes, $35,000. We can get him for $35,000. This emotional distress. Well, that's when I had the pimples. Now, I use Accutane for a year. It clears it all up. As you know, lawsuits go. They take a while. This year has passed. I'm all cleared up. I'm now a senior. Uh, two years have passed. Um, I'm now a senior in high school. Pimples are gone. Things are going great. Things with the girls are going great. I'm confidence is high, et cetera, et cetera. I now get called in for the deposition with the uh, defending attorney, the, the attorney defending oil of mink. And he sits down with me <laughs> and he pulls out these pictures of me where I was just all lump faced with the pimples. He's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, you poor young man. Um, the emotional distress must have been so high. And I'm over here at 18 years old thinking, He's throwing me a softball. I'm like, oh, I was so emotionally distressed. And I'm thinking, here we go, 35 grand. And just as I'm getting confident that we've got this case, this prosecuting lawyer reaches under the table, pulls out this green, what looked to be a yearbook. Now, it was a long view logo. Our yearbook was green. He opens it up to a marked page, looks at the picture, turns the thing around and slides it over in front of me and points to a picture and goes, who's that? And I look down and there I am standing next to Camisa Springs, that senior year of high school with a sash over my chest that says most handsome. And as I looked at that, I looked up at him and he just leaned and he goes, so emotionally distressful, huh? And I knew, I knew we lost the case. It was all, we did, we lost it. It was thrown out. But that's my oil of mink story. Um, oh, and uh, I pull out all the impurities. Yeah, uh-huh. Well, I can see uh, why you were inspired to become a barrister in your early life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I got a much needed ab workout reading that story in your book, <laughs> just from the laughter. Um, and, uh, and I will say um, it's been a really enjoyable experience because I've read it, but I also listened to it on Audible and you do the reading in your inimitable uh, drawl and character. And uh, we've been listening to it, my wife and I, as we go to bed. That's about as romantic as it gets in, in our household of three girls now. So uh, Yeah, I, I hear you. Been, uh, I know how that goes. <laughs> that's right. I know you do. Um, so there's a lot of terrain I'd love to cover. Uh, but let's start with Greenlights, because that's, I think, the primary premise here of our conversation. So this book was published, I think, last October. October 20th. And it quickly, yeah. And this was your first book, I believe. Yes. Sir. And you, you got off on a good start because it uh, became an instant New York Times bestseller. And um, it, I, I'd categorize it as a compendium in some ways of really insightful and enjoyable stories and prescriptions and what you call bumper stickers, one word, <laughs> um, that provide a, like a, chronicle, a chronological window into the journey of chasing your best self. You know, all the green, yellow, and red lights that you hit uh, along that voyage, and, and everybody hits them. So I just wonder for a general context for those who haven't read the book, um, what does a green light signify to you? 
Green lights mean go. Yes, more please. Amen. Uh-huh. Out of boy, out of girl. Affirm your way. Proceed. <laughs> um, we love them because they do that. They're easy. They affirm our way. Yellow lights, it's, which is really kind of, I think, where the the art of living in a lot of ways is because it's the place where we have a choice. Uh, do we slow down and make that yellow light red and take some real inventory in our life? Maybe turn that pause and give crisis credit, turn it into a red light, whether that be a hardship, crisis, disease, death, something like that. Or a yellow light sometimes is where you look at, no, I'm not going to get that crisis credit. You put the pedal to the metal and you blow that damn thing. And you say, I'm not going to slow down for that because it's not a, it's, it's not a, a crisis. I'm going to give credit. Red lights are when we're full stop. These are, you know, full long jackknives in our life that just stop us in our tracks. Things did not go as we planned. Actually, they may have gone the opposite as we planned. They can be uh, unexpected uh, hardships, crisis, death, uh, disease, uh, problems with health, etc. What I noticed in writing my book was I've engineered green lights for myself. I've taken responsibilities for things that paid me off in my future. And I called my shot and I made it. I also noticed that sometimes green lights fell in my lap, my damn lap. Where the heck did that come from? I got no idea, but heck, I'm going to try and take advantage of it. Um, I've noticed that yellow lights in my life where yellow lights, if it's all green lights, if it's all just the green light, well, then what are we doing? We're running in circles and we're not really evolving. We're going to get dizzy. We're repeat offenders of the same bad, bad habits because we just, we're just, we're just, Pedal to the metal until we run out of gas. Yellow light, which I was saying earlier, is the art of do you slow down and make it a red and give it real give it real credence or do you blow through it? Those are really interesting because, you know, we'll, we go through life, we have habits, and we step in the, our potholes of life. And we look back and sometimes we go, why do I keep stepping in that same pothole or that same pile of S-H-I-T? I keep doing that or banging my head against the wall of trying to solve the same problem the same damn way I've been trying to do it all my life. I got to back yeah. up a minute. I got to take a pause. I got to look at that pothole and go, oh, I see why I keep stepping in that. Or maybe I got to back off of where I'm banging my head and say, oh, don't try and go through it. Why not dance around it? And that can give us openings to new green lights. We don't like yellow lights. We don't like red lights. But what I've noticed, even with red lights, where I have the death of my father, a real red light. It had a green light lesson for me. It had, it, it, it helped me kickstart being the man I was trying to become because all I was doing while he was alive was trying to act like the man he wanted me to become because I knew I had him as a crutch behind me. I knew that he had my back if the SHIT really hit the fan, but now he's physically gone. And I'm like, whoa, that safety net's not there anymore, Matthew. So it sped me up and initiated me and incentivized me to go, you better start being the man you're trying to be instead of acting like it. So in that respect, there's the, 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 the analogy, the metaphor, whatever, whatever it's called, that in the rear view mirror life, I do believe that every yellow and red will turn green. Now, when, do, when does it turn green? Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> one, one value of creating more green lights in our life is to trust that our hardships, our yellow and red lights, do have a green light asset in them. We, asset in them. Just believe that they're going to turn green can help us through some hard times. But then when do we realize it? When do we realize the lesson learned? Well, sometimes we realize it when we're in the problem. Sometimes we realize it the next day, next week, next month, next year. Sometimes I think we're going to realize it on our deathbed. And I also agree that sometimes we're not going to realize 
how some of the red and yellow lights of our life turn green in this life. I think maybe our great, great grandkids may reap the benefit of our red and yellow lights in our life and learn a lesson two, three generations from now that they'll go, oh, that's what that was for. So the final summation, though, is that I do believe in the rear view mirror of life, all the reds and yellows do eventually turn green. Yeah, and it seems like you've also refined your ability over time to engineer that process. Um, yes. If we can, you know, jump into the reconnaissance, as you mm -hmm. uh, surreptitiously dubbed it, um, later in the conversation. But knowing when to pull back um, is a is a skill. But as you say, you know, you can engineer your own green lights, but um, you know. Uh, but sometimes people can give you green lights. Yeah. And there, there was a, a bit in the book that really struck an emotional chord with me. I grew up with my brother, with my, just with my dad through our adolescence, which is pretty rare, you know? And uh, so I had a, you know, particularly close relationship with my father who, you know, facilitated, a, I would say a lot of green lights for me. But as we kind of alluded to briefly before, you know, you grew up in in a in a you know relatively hard scrabble blue collar mm -hmm. um, family, and you were being groomed to be the family lawyer, and uh, and you had at least in the early parts of your life really just embraced and stepped into that role, oil of mink notwithstanding, <laughs> uh, and um, and you had I guess I would call it an epiphany or an inflection point that. Um, that that's not what you wanted to do anymore. That's not what you wanted to devote your life to. And maybe you could just unpack that for a moment, yeah. that, uh, that epiphany, and then what, <laughs> what that meant right. in terms of the relationship, particularly with your dad. Sure. So that's what I was expected to do. And I was honored to think that that's what I was going to do. And I thought I could be a damn good lawyer since I was 12. I was the debater in the household. I was the one that could actually make my mom and dad go, gosh, damn it. Why do we listen? You got us thinking now. I mean, I, I, I was the only one of the three, my two bro three brothers that could get them to think about something a different way or make a point where they would consider it after, instead of just saying, because we told you so. Now I get off to college. I'm at university of Texas. It's at the end of my sophomore year. And as we all know, sometimes we don't really wake up to what it is we want to do until we're about to have to make a decision. Well, the end of my sophomore year is that time where the credits from now on in my school, junior, senior, need to go directly towards law school. If I change my major, then that I'm going to waste credit. So I'm at a time in my life where I was not sleeping well with the idea of becoming a lawyer. I'm like, man, I, I've been writing short stories. I've been uh, doing a lot of creative writing. I'm thinking I'm going to get out of here. I got to go to law school. And then I'm going to get out and try to get a job. I mean, I'm going to be in my mid, maybe my young 30s before I'm actually making a mark, executing some vocation. And I go, I don't want to spend my decade in my 20s just learning. What do I want to do? So I want to get this storytelling business. Oh my gosh, that sounds so, so much like a Saturday. That sounds so avant-garde. That sounds so <laughs> European. I mean, the way I grew up, that's like you want to what? No, you know that that's a hobby that we do well, but you don't go make a living doing that. Well, I had a friend, Rob Bindler, who gave me the confidence um, to say, I, I think you should. He actually thought I should get in front of the camera. I didn't have the courage to say yes to that yet, but I did say, hey, I want to get behind the camera. Maybe you can help tell stories. Now, 
I got to call mom and dad, dad specifically, to convince them this is what I want to do. I'm very anxious about this call. I actually remember setting it out. I made the decision on that Saturday. And the Tuesday, I set planned the Tuesday following. And my ideas were like, Monday's not great because it's the first day back at work. Tuesday, dad's back into work. He's got a few sales going. I'll call about 7.30. He gets home from work at 6. He'll have had just finished dinner, having his first beer with mom on the couch. Yeah, yeah, perfect time. I call him 7.36 p.m. Hey, Pop, what's up, monkey man? Listen, I can I talk to you about something? Sure, bud, what's up? Pop, I don't want to go to law school anymore. I, I want to go to film school. Pause. And I'm going, oh, here we go. He's about to go. I'm about to hear, you want to do what, boy? I don't hear that. There's a five-second pause. Next thing I hear is, well, <clears throat> you sure that's what you want to do? I said, yes, sir. And I said, yes, sir, clearly, and back to him right off the end of his sentence. Another five-second pause. And then he gave me the three best words he's given me. He goes, well, don't half-ass it. And through the phone, I, I felt that little, his right molars meet, which kind of gave me a little, you know, like you a little kick in the ass. I, I got his approval. I got the privilege. I got the responsibility. I got the freedom. I got the accountability. I, all of it in just the way he said those three words. And something I've noticed since, uh, Jeff, that I think is interesting is as I've unpacked that story, I realize what it was I think that went through my dad's mind by hearing his son, his youngest son, say, I want to go my own way, a way that we've never spoken about before, which I think in a way now as becoming a parent is an example of what we want to hear one day from all of our kids. We raise our kids in a structured way. You're going to be this. If you follow these rules, you work your way up a ladder, you'll check off boxes along the way and you'll make your way up the stairwell. But what do we really want to hear? That day when our kids go, I'm not going that way. I'm going my own. Now, he heard in my voice by how quickly he goes, are you sure that's what you want to do? Yes, sir. The non-pause, the fact that, the fact that when I asked him, I wasn't really asking permission. I wasn't yeah. really asking him a question. He could hear that. And the fact that I said, yes, sir, right away meant that to his ears, he was like, oh, my son's not bluffing. Oh, he's walked his own plank. Yeah, that's what I want. And then he said, don't have that. And it all happened in 25 seconds. But if I would have gone, is that you sure that's what you want to do? I'd have gone, I mean, you know, Pop, I, I, I think I, he'd have gone, boy, what the hell are you talking? He'd have jumped in because he'd have made me, you better be convicted. But I didn't. And I think that's in that moment, he was proud that he was like, ah, I raised my son all right, that he came back to me and said, I'm going my own way, Pop. And I'm asking you, but I'm not really asking. Yeah, it's funny. I didn't I didn't think of it that way when I read it, but you're absolutely right. And I, I'm making that connection when I asked my wife to be grandfather for permission. And I wasn't really asking for permission. I was right? saying, I'm marrying your granddaughter. Yes. And there's nothing you can really do about right. it. And that's and what he's like, you're the one. You're the one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, don't come a bluffing. Uh, don't come a bluffing. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, and and that has become uh, this notion of not half-assing it um, is certainly a, a light motif of your life, um, and and I would call it a, a core value, or it seems like it. And I want to talk a little bit about values for, for a minute. Yeah. Now, you know, 
I think one one thing that's interesting when you write a book, it feels like a finite piece of work. It feels codified, but the second you publish it, it becomes a million books or however many you sold, right. probably more than that, because everyone who reads it brings their own direct experience and knowledge to it, you know? And um, like, for example, I know the greatest salesman in the world. That was a book that had a great influence on you. It's not, it's about you. It's about the reader. It's not really right. about the author. Right. And uh, I, I think that the infectious element of story and storytelling is that everyone sees some of their own in someone else's, you know? So, and this is really what makes self-expression like so unifying and, and expansive. And, and in reading your book, I found something in your story that was very convergent with my own. And I know you prodded this, you know, towards the end of the book, but in some ways, um, I suppose you could see the first chapter of your life uh, about values, about establishing the traits that define what it is to be you. Yep. And then, you know, and this is me just interpreting, but the second chapter is more about living. You know, in yep. your case, a lot of madcap adventures on motorcycles and trips down the Amazon and Chateau Marmont, which is just around the corner for me. And yep. it's associated debauchery and all that stuff. And then the third chapter I call, at least looking at myself, living values or right. living values which is making the choices in your life that align your actions with your highest self. Amen. So, um, so perhaps we just start with that first chapter and values and, um, and maybe you could just kind of poke at that a little bit of like, yeah. what are your defining values and where did they come from? And where do you think values come from in general? Oh yeah. Boy, great question. I'd love to talk for days about this. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> this is really what I want to talk about. Yeah, I mean, my my mine early on were hard work. I learned resilience over time. Gratitude was a big, you know, you know, lowest con to, to to be appreciative of what you got. How many times my mom would sit there and say, if we were grumpy in the morning, and I mean, come at us going. Who the hell do you think guaranteed that sun was going to rise again this morning? Did you just take that for granted? You took that as a guarantee? Who do you think uh, you are? I mean, you're bam, humbled to go, oh, yeah. Oh, thank you. Which made the burnt toast taste a little better, <laughs> even if you didn't want it burnt. You're like, okay, at least I got toast. Yes, thank you. Um, then dad was, you know, it, it's, I remember very clearly the times where my parents performed corporal punishment on me, which gave me pain, mm. short-term pain, but it was for the first time for not answering to my name, the second time for saying I hate you to my brother, the third for saying I can't, C-A-N-T, and the fourth for lying. So on a very, you know, just mammalian, Pavlovian level, you could say, oh, I related pain with those, so... What's the antonym? Oh, okay. Know your name, answer to your name, tell the truth, love don't hate, um, and uh, um, say you're, believe you're having trouble, but never believe you can't. So the antonym was the values. Um, and that's what my mom and dad were trying to instill in me is, look, if you go through the wor world not being able to stand up and tell the truth, whatever, if you take the consequences of it and you lie about it, 
you're going to have a hard time negotiating out there. If you go through the world saying, hey, thinking you can hate and hating things instead of loving things, uh-uh. you're going to have an unhappy, happy travel, buddy. Um, if you go through the world believing you can't do things and believe in that word can't instead of, hey, we all have trouble. I remember my dad many times, hey, you're having trouble. I remember the time he, I couldn't, I told him I can't get the lawnmower started. And he came out and he started it for me after fixing a couple of things and got down on two knees, put his hands on my shoulders. He goes, you see, buddy, you were just having trouble. And I would go like, oh yeah. If you say I'm having trouble, you don't believe you can't, even if you're unable to do it yourself, you can ask for help. Yeah. You know, that is a form of, I'm just having trouble. It didn't mean I couldn't. Yeah. And that's humility, right? In there. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I can't yeah. do it myself, you know, so. No, I'm, I'm gonna, unable to yeah. do it myself. I'm seeking some help. Can I get some, please? That still means you were only having trouble. So the antonyms of those were the offense of the values that I've, that stuck in me that I've tried to work on and, and cultivate and evolve through my life. Um, you know, where do values come from? I saw the examples of those from my family, my family and mom and dad were, had, had their, were very clear about what they stood for, what they didn't stand for, what they liked, disliked, but I don't, I, I've never, I can to never heard my mom say hate or my dad say the word hate, or I've never known anything that they did hate. They never showed me something they hated. They had showed me great dislike for things and opposition, never hated it. Um, you know, uh, what else can't No, never the word can't I just don't hear that. I don't remember the last time I heard that word. Um, trying to instill that in my kids too. Um, and then the lion thing, I mean, you know, as you read the book, we're, I'm gonna come from a family of great bullshitters, but a bull that different is the bullshitter <laughs> in the middle of the story can slide you the wink, which is like, just go with it. And you're like, ah, okay, I get it. He's not, and that's okay. Cause we can acknowledge that. Come on, we're dramatizing the story and it's a better story for it. Yeah, I'll even chime in as well. But the straight lie, uh, which which some people do, and hell, I've done it before too. It just doesn't have a, all those things just don't, I've, I've, in my life I said, oh, they don't have residuals for me. They don't have residuals for us as individuals. Uh, to and, and, and they're not near as fun to live, to, to live without those values or to live by, you know, if you're, Hate, lie, cheat, steal, answer to any name, and uh, uh, and believe you can't do stuff. It's just not going to be as fun of a life either. Um, yeah, it's a good question. Let's unpack where the value, where values come from. Yeah, <clears throat> because I look at obviously a lot of people derive their values from religion, for example. Yeah. So what I like to look at um, is the consilience that seems to exist between all these different religions which to me points to the fact that there is some sort of moral intuition that emerges behind them. Like right. we didn't need Moses to hold up a tablet <laughs> on, a, right. on a mount that said, thou shall not kill right. to know that murder was wrong. Right. right. And right. so th this is, you know, uh, one of the things I'm really trying to get at is that, you know, where does that moral intuition come from and is and can it be universal yeah. and shared because yeah. as and we'll get into this because as we look 
around at like the political invective or all the things that separate us. Um, you know, if we can hone in on what defines our common humanity, right. and I, I think that you're onto something here, that it might just be in values. I'll, I'll read you something that you wrote, yeah. okay? Yeah. Travel and, um, hold on, hold on one second. It says, travel and humanity have been my greatest educators. They have helped me understand the common denominator of mankind, values. Engage with yourself, then engage with the world. Values travel. Yep. So, you know, I wonder, you know, isn't, I know you feel there's so much potency in, in values. Yeah. And uh, let's, let's, let's bounce this a little yeah, bit. Yeah, let's do. I mean... Let me start. This came to me the other day because I do believe that's the that's the honey hole that we can. I go, oh, okay. We have a similar value. I'm not into this idea, but hey, we're all the same. No, 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 no. I think we're all very different, and we're born with different innate abilities. We have different looks, colors, tastes, et cetera, et cetera. But the values are that common dominant that we can go. Okay, I have a social expectation from you because I believe you. I you value that. We 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 have opposition of uh, opinion on healthcare, but we both want our mom and dad to be as healthy as possible. Uh, right. Okay, we, we yeah. agree on that, right? Okay. Um, so I was thinking about this the other day of how values are really what, speaking in political terms, because things get politicized so much. What values are what really can break down the walls, because each camp the right and the left are claiming to have license to certain values, to have trademarks right. on certain values. The left, let's go through. The left has a, believes they have a trademark on intellectualism. The left believes they have a trademark on rehabilitation. The left believes they have a trademark on science. The left believes they have a trademark on, uh, I don't know if that would go with rehab. What else? Let, that's, that, that's a few. So the right believes they have, if you're going to say the opposite of intellectual, I don't know. The right believes they have a work, trademark on work ethic, self-reliance. The, the right thinks they have, if, if the left has rehabilitation, the, the right believes they have a trademark on consequences. Uh, the left believes they have a trademark on science. The right believes they have a trademark on faith. They don't own these things. Those things are not, there's, those aren't contradictions. No one owned, not one a political party. It's not, it's not an umbrella big enough to own these things. These are paradoxes. We all got a right to these. It's a human right to each one of these values. It's not a political if, if or situation. And so in finding that honey hole of what you're talking about, which what is that common denominator which you bring up? My hunch is right now to start with going, well, wait a minute, let's look at who's trying to give, take ownership of these and say, because I've got them, you don't have them. You can't have them, which is more of the world I think we're living in right now in the opposition, which I write in the book. I don't even believe we have true controversy right now. True controversy at least means I have to give you credit as an opposition. And we don't even give credit to our opposition anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, no, no, we don't. Um, I heard you. There was a quote you. I heard you. I think it was on my friend Russell's podcast where you said, uh, uh, "The only thing in the middle right now are yellow lines and dead armadillos." <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> yeah. Someone told me that when I said, let's, I said, I'm aggressively centric. And this guy goes, oh, good old boy, smart, funny guy. He goes, hell, it's interesting. You're the only damn thing in the middle of the road. Yellow lines and armadillos. And I remember I was right back. I said, hey, buddy, let me tell you, man. <laughs> the two sides are so far from the yellow lines. The armadillos are running free in the middle of the road because all four of the wheels, all four sets of tires on each side of the aisle right now aren't even touching the pavement. They're way off in the gravel. Um, yeah. it, but it was a funny, it was a funny comeback that he said. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll just, uh, you know, drop a little, you know, intimation into the ether here of, you know, I, I wonder what a values tour would look like, you know, based around story, you know, because I look at like, okay, we made that, delineation between the left and the right. Like, let's take it on an on a specific issue like immigration, which to be honest, there's much more uh, convergence there than we think there is right. if we just watch Fox or MSNBC or whatever. Right. But, you know, but the right will kind of take this, you know, line of like, you know, uh, the left is anarchy and open borders and they're not letting it, we're not letting in our best people and they're stealing our work and stealing our jobs and, uh, and they're criminals or, you know, what have you. And then the left has taken kind of this, you know, a feat, um, stance and they pause it. Oh, but this is the land of opportunity and the American dream. And unless, you know, you were brought here, uh, unless you're a defendant, uh, a descendant of a slave or or a Native American, you are an immigrant. You know, so I see these this invective happen, and it's not there's nothing profitable to that project. You know, on social media <laughs> no. or anything. No. So, but no. what if you? But what if you asked the values oriented question behind it, which is it could be and it could be a number of different things. But what if you asked? What are the preconditions that would prompt someone to pack up and leave their own country and go to a country that speaks a different language that doesn't even want them? You know, right. What are those preconditions? Whoa. You know, and that is just that changes the whole tenor of of the conversation, because then you get into a values oriented conversation of like, well, what's happening in Guatemala or El Salvador? What are those conditions? What responsibility do we have there or not? Yeah. Or, or no responsibility. Yeah, 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 but yeah. it just it humanize it humanizes the whole thing. So, you know, um, yep. It, you know, these are the, the conversations I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that, that you're already eliciting. Um, I'm I'm, try, I'm, I'm right glad you're hearing right. a little bit of listeners because I'm this is what I'm trying to get all over daily. This is what's on my mind is how to. I almost say this term, okay, values. It sounds great. I get it. But how do you, could you say how do we commodify values? Measure them. Like what's the measurement? Give me some science because. They sound, they feel good. They sound good. Yeah, I got it. I'll do that. But I mean, I want to know, okay, what's my ROI? And maybe even how does there a way to show that values can fill your bank account? That's another That's right. mountain to climb, but still what, at least it humanizes in what you're saying and to go. So first we got to have a conversation where we're coming in and the, and the gym statement coming in is we're not going to condemn and we're not here to convert. Mm. 
No condemnation, no conversion. All right. right. We can agree here. All we're going to do is we're going to walk out of this conversation agreeing on one value or, or two values or however many you get, one at least, and we can shake on that and still go, F you, I disagree, and I don't go to that church and I ain't voting that way. Fine. Yeah. Fine. But can we walk away with one, one, yeah. one, one little piece that was a bridge that go, oh, me too. Oh, you too? Oh, okay, me too. Just one. It... I believe it'll do something. It has to be more than, I believe in, in the end, it needs to be more than that, but how to commodify them, how to make them real and measurable. Yeah. So I think this is really interesting because, you know, there has been a cleavage over time philosophically between facts and values that facts has been the providence of science and the scientific method of experimentation and observation, et cetera but that science requires a sort of value-neutral, non-biased approach in order mm. to deliver conclusion. And then you have over here uh, values, which has been, you know, the sandbox of, uh, of faith. And, you know, it, it's really spirituality and religion. And, you know, to be honest, I don't think that there needs to be a chasm between facts and values. I think that values can emerge from a more scientific observation, which I think is what you're hinting at, yes. where there are actual indices and metrics that can point to what makes a society thrive or imbue, how do we imbue more well-being in the most possible people, which speaks to your um you know, axiom around utilitarianism, right? Yep. So, and I, I think it's possible, and we see some models of it, like in New Zealand, for example, or in Bhutan, most famously, you know, they have a happiness index. Yep. But, you know, how G&H. do we measure things like, yeah, like, you know, B Corp saturation, which I, yep. and I think, you know, you talk about some, or poverty rates, literacy, access to health care, um, sure, you know, medium, median income, but try to really get to those metrics that then can measure values and try to get away from the ones that don't like GDP or right, the, right. the Dow Jones you know, exchange, because yeah. those are empty, empty metrics. Well, they are, but those are more, we're more religious about those metrics than than any pursuit of transcendent self or God, if we're believers or any spirituality. I mean, yeah. that's, that's, th- those are our true Vatican. <laughs> that, that, I mean, that, that's yeah. our, that's our religion. You know, yeah. I mean, we've, we've made it to be that I, I, you know, again, in my love of paradox, I'm trying to say, how can it be both? Because boy, in our, in, especially in the West in a, in a capitalist society, that that's more than a large size boulder to push up a hill to try and get us to go, Hey, forget your bank account, check in with the middle of your soul's account. What I'm trying to think and it leans into these B Corp ideas <laughs> is, yeah. Hey, where do you feel both? Where do you feel both? And you are worth more and you have more respect from society more. If you fill your bank account, but you did it by filling your soul's account. You didn't like cheat steal. You didn't forego your values to succeed. 
Because right now, we don't care how the hell you got to the top. If you got more zeros behind your, your dollar sign, you get the head of the table. Yeah. It's yours. I don't care who you who you pillaged and killed along the way and screwed over. I don't care. You got a higher number, head of the table. That value, that value system is out of order. Now, how do yeah. we get ourselves? So when you go into values, you bring up morality and you bring up science, as you said, the metrics of values can emerge from science. I'm a believer. All right. I'm a man of faith. And, I, I, it, and it, I've had strong times. Where I'm stronger in my faith and times where I'm weaker in my faith, but still, still believe. And I've always believed that science is the practical pursuit of God. Not going to ever get there, which is another metaphor for what I believe life is individually and as states and nations. We're all an aspiration. Yeah. We're not That's going good. to get the result. We're not going to land and go, ta-da, I made it. America's never going to go, oh, now we finally know what justice is. And now we finally have a clear definition on equality. We're not going to get there. But can we keep, can the stair, can the staircase still go up where we have a small ascension of evolution? Um, can we do that as individuals? I challenge, let me ask you this. I think that everybody is interested if they're, if they're, if they hear it in their right way to believe more in their own capacity to be better, to be more true, to be closer to their better self. But I'm told I'm being arrogant and believing that. I'm told that a lot of people are like, I don't, what are you talking about, man? Piss off. <laughs> I don't, I yeah. don't, I, that doesn't, that doesn't, I don't, I don't give a damn about that. I mean, I think, I think you nailed it with this notion of aspiration. I mean, who doesn't have aspiration? I mean, in, in some ways, I mean, the Fourth of July is coming up, and I've been thinking about like, okay, we hold these truths to be self-evident, right? All men are created equal. That is an aspiration, and we're inching our way along down the arc of the moral universe. Yeah. Sometimes that that path is jagged, and sometimes we're taking a step backwards to take two steps forward. But who doesn't have their own declaration of independence? Right. Really. Right. You know. Right. Or maybe that's what we need to help people with. You yes. know. Because what what truths are self evident in you and yes. in you and in me? And then how do we inch down the 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 moral uh, the arc of the moral universe in our own lives um, yep. and I mean you you know you do this beautiful job of weaving together this kind of idea of uh, e pluribus unum you know out of many one right. that the um, that oftentimes when we actually break it down that that our self-interest and the collective good turn out to be one and the same thing. Yes, you know? we just got to, it's just very thin veil <laughs> we have over our eyes and we seem to be blinded by it. It's, it's, it's like we yeah. drank the Kool-Aid and, uh, you know, I talk about it with, 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 with politics. We, I believe in this same way that we're talking about this in conversation to this point. We're all much more centrist than we're led to believe we are. That's right. We have the numbers. I think people's value, people with their certain common denominator values have the numbers. We're running the ship. 
Now, there's a couple of militia pirates groups that are coming over on the far right and the far left, and we are being told that they are the absolute boogeyman, and we better be scared. And we're like going, whoa, when the fact is, look around, man, we got them 84% to 16. Let's kick them off the boat. Don't let them board. So I think we're kind of drinking the Kool-Aid, and we're told to by some of these media stations and formats and platforms that tell us and dramatize things. And you're told, and I get it, man. I'll, I'll watch the same damn issue and hear Fox say it. And I'm like, damn, they got a good point. I'll watch the same issue on NBC. I say, damn, they got a point. They both seem right. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. They dramatized. And it was sound, it's a pep rally. It's not, you That's know, right. let me ask you this. I was to try and deconstruct all this. Do you think we need to, before we get aspirational and say, hey, let's get a value epidemic one we don't want a vaccine for. All right. Do you think it, it, before we get into that, those tools and that aspiration that we need to say, all right, first off, let's find a way to agree on a fact, something that's actual. That is that a value yeah. to agree on a fact? Because <laughs> hmm. we don't do it now. Yeah, this is... Uh, man, this is so central to our ability to have conversation. Because, you know, when I was watching the presidential debates last fall, it wasn't really a debate. It was a recitation of two different sets of facts, right? Yeah. So we're living in this post-truth environment. And, you know, you're absolutely right about the media. The media takes an event, sensationalizes it, editorializes over the top of it, either to the left or to the right. And uh, and then deploys it in a way to maximize and leverage human negativity bias in a way <laughs> that creates fear and outrage. I mean, everyone's outraged all yeah, the time. They're in time. what I call amygdala hijack, you know. Yep. And when you're in your amygdala all the time, you're not going to make rational decisions. You're not going to be able to to use your prefrontal cortex to actually, you know, practice discernment and all these kinds of things. So. It's really, you're right, the media landscape is so polluted that we need to kind of get behind it and really reestablish common ground. Because, like, nothing ever big and good happened, you know, without social cohesion, right? right. You know, our, our big projects have always been predicated on our ability to cooperate flexibly at scale. Right. And, and that doesn't mean I agree with you all the time, but that means we can come together again around big projects. And in the absence of fact, it, you know, what we've seen is a complete erosion of coherence, of cohesion. Yeah. So we don't agree on the science around COVID or, you know, that you know, or the reckoning for social justice. You've got half of America that believes that, you know, there were rampant riots and looting and another half that believes that all these protests are absolutely peaceful. There's just no, there's, <laughs> there's no common ground. So no. I think, you know, we, we need to re- completely reassess the media landscape. And then I think, to be honest, individuals like you that have significant reach, you know, need to help people cohere around you know what is objective truth and that's right. hard <laughs> it's you know i thought because it's taken certain tragic events 
to bring people together. We all know that. We don't, we all sit there and we intellectualize how we should mm. do this. And then we don't do it until it threatens our, what's inside our walls. You know what I mean? I mean, it, it, I thought that, you know, bin Laden and ISIS was going to really galvanize. Ah, first thing since Hitler that we can all agree on. Bad guy, you know, <laughs> that'll, that'll really, we'll, we'll yeah. come together. Didn't really happen. Then I it actually did thought for a minute. Yeah. it did for a minute, but it was a pep rally and it, and it, and it, and it, and yeah, it, that's right. it, 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 it was, you know, we built another tower just there, but we didn't really change besides what becoming more nationalist and protectionist in certain ways that in certain ways made us what some would argue less American. Um, then you got COVID. I was like very early on. I was like, I know it's too early to say this, but this may be what gets us all <laughs> going together. Now, so yeah. far, I've been wrong. And I've tried to wonder why. Oh, it's because it's an invisible enemy. And our reaction is, you know, as Americans, to get on the front line and greet it, which this enemy wants you to do that. That's how it wins. Um, but that didn't, that hasn't happened in a year and a half. You know, what, what, what is it? And again, in the way of we talked about morality or responsibility or the Moses commandments, those are the you better if or do not if. That's what a lot of religion does, and that's a lot of it's wonderfully fear based. And I, I'm a I'm a I'm a fan of how I've learned and what fear has kept me from doing things I shouldn't have done in my life. But what if we go the step further, more into a, a more sort of Eastern philosophy, which is no, do it by choice, man. It's right. good for you, which is what you were leaning into when you were like talking about this e pluribus. What's good for you can be what's best for the most amount of people. Those are not a contradiction. It's a choice. Do it because the can the broccoli tastes good and it's good for you. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it's like it's the healthiest meal you can eat and it tastes great. We we have to go through a little rehabilitation of our minds and spirits though, to get to that understanding. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is an interesting pivot here for a moment because, you know, you've done, your life has been chock full of walkabouts and, and personal retreats. And I think forays into solitude that have given you some of the, these insights. And I mean, you know, I'm a, I wouldn't call myself a Buddhist, but I'm a, a follower of, of Buddhism. And, you know, the whole purpose of, of Buddhism is the realization of the non-self, right? It's, it's nirvana. It's, um, so, you know, I, so I want to um, just kind of understand a little bit um, more about your relationship spiritually with, with solitude. And you wrote something that just resonated with me so much. I have it here. It says, we need to put ourselves in places of decreased sensory input so we can hear the background signals of our psychological processes. As the noise decreases, the signals become clearer. We can hear ourselves again. We can reunite. Time alone simplifies the heart. And man, I mean, as someone who's a regular meditator, um, I think you cut right to the heart of it is that you know these practices are really just processes into 
uh, understanding the function of our own mind. And, yeah. and this is where the whole world exists within our own mind. Yeah. So in some yeah. ways, what we need to spark is a spiritual revolution as, as much yeah. as a political one. But, yeah. you know, one thing that I was, I wanted you to talk about, because I think one of the most striking characteristics about you is, uh, and there are many, um, is your ability to toggle between extroversion and introversion. Mm. Um, in one moment, you know, you're most handsome, lighting up the tavern, <laughs> holding court <laughs> on the red carpet or whatever. And the next moment you're off to the Amazon or Mali or the desert. And I wonder how this, this kind of elixir of solitude and adventure has played a part in the process of, of identifying who yeah. you are and, and how might that be helpful for other people? So, I mean, a couple things. I grew up much more extroverted. I met my friend Rob Bendler, who's the one who gave me the confidence to go to film school. I met him in art class. I was most popular. I was on the football team, the golf team. I, I, I was most handsome, but I took art class and met Rob, the 120 pound Jewish kid who was non-athletic, but loved movies and dad, whose dad was an interior decorator, and he read books. I'd never read a book. He and I became friends. So on Friday night, I would take him with me to meet my friends at the dead end with the tailgate down, the kegger and the music and dancing and chasing girls. And on Saturday night, we'd go to his house, play ping pong, watch a movie, write scripts and read philosophy and stuff. And that was our switch off. And I, my mom yeah. called us salt and pepper. And so that was my first dip into introversion. And, you know, I was keeping a diary up to that point, but it was sort of like something I was doing on, on, this, on the side on my own. Um, and then to go hang, spend time with him, I was like, oh, introspection, reading, to, to, to invest, investigating yourself and doing something other than just going out and engaging all the time is actually, there's great value in that. And I kind of enjoyed it. Uh, the conversations were different. Uh, um, so... Then in life, the introversion, the extroversion. So I would say most of my younger life, I was more extroverted. And going to write the book, I, 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 the last, I mean, I've taken these trips and been introverted and taken my solo trips many times through my life. And I come to love it so much that the hardest part's coming back and engaging and being extroverted again. The extreme example is the writing of the book. The hardest part about that was coming back and engaging with my family, with my friends. I was like, I didn't, I was, I was having too much of a good time having the Socratic dialogue with myself. I didn't want to talk with anybody else. And I was like, whoa, you better watch this McConaughey. That's not, you got to get rebalanced here. Um, I've probably toggled between, I have a threshold and a spider sense that has gone off that I've been fortunate enough to listen to a few times in my life that, Oh, we're rolling as an extrovert. Oh, we're rolling when we got the mic in our hand. Oh, put me on the stage. Oh, I want to be there. I love it. At right at that time when I'm like, I got this. I have a little spider sense that goes, woo, woo. Hey, hey, watch it, watch it. You just feel like you got it. You have it down now. Better get out of town. Like jackknife situation. <laughs> like, like just re straight reverb. Do 180 the situation. Go away and go and go away going like, what am I doing? But then trust that you'll get there and go, ah, you did need to listen to yourself. Oh, you did need to let memory catch up. And at the same time, I'll now become more so introverted. 
that I have to remind myself, hey, go engage, man. But no, I'm enjoying my own company. What a great thing for a man to be able to do. Oh, great. You can still do that. Get out and engage. Go be about others. Don't be that. Don't be overly so self-involved that you're in any way. And you got to go re-oil those parts of the machine. You know, the extrovert have to come back and I got to re-oil that a little bit. And I got to go, the introvert, I got to re-oil that a little bit. But I've gone back and forth. And if I get too comfortable with one, that little spider sense tells me, go do the other right now. Don't lose the ability to do that or the capacity to be the extrovert while you're being the introvert or vice versa. So I've toggled between the two. But I will say this, though. The introversion, which is what you let off with, whether it's meditation, time alone, a walkabout, church, whatever it is, that's where you get to know the self. That's who you then get to know that well enough. You know who you're going to be when you're the extrovert. If you're all extrovert and no introvert, you start spinning in circles after a while and people telling you, you told me the same damn story again. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm tired of that story. I'm bored with that story. I'm like, I just tell the same story again to the same people. Maybe I need to go <laughs> to do some inventory, right? Um, um, and it goes, you know, back and back and forth. So I just try to toggle between the two, but I do know that the introversion How do you do, you know, I've thought of becoming a hermit. I've thought of being a monk. Yeah. Um, I think that might be a little indulgent for what I'm, what I'm here on this earth supposed to do. Um, but uh, uh, I do know the value of that time. And the more people I talk to, I would say more people that I talk to need to try harder to take that introverted time. Whether it's a pen to paper. Yes. Or a meditation or a prayer or a walk alone or reservation or one for dinner, take that time. More people I talk to are scared of being alone than I thought there would be. Yeah, well, I, I really tried to stake out this middle way um, and you can make an analogy to centrism in, in politics, uh, but it's also a very spiritual life choice. And, you know, this was initially promulgated by the Buddha as a, kind of a middle path between asceticism or you know monasticism and engaging in in hedonism or you know pleasures of the flesh and you know he he found that the road to enlightenment is down the middle path um, and one that you need to bushwhack yourself right but it's still um, it, it, it's still a a a, a, um, a walkway of discernment and intention and right work and right action and right speech and right livelihood and then a good amount of, of introspection along the way. And, you know, I know that there's been some significant inflection points in your life. You know, you, you were in a moment where you were killing it at the box office um, with rom-coms and you were getting paid and seemingly having a hell of a lot of fun. Um, but there, and you write about this, that there was a disconnect, uh, between your private life, which was extremely edgy and daring and courageous and occasionally audacious and, and your career, which you describe as kind of shirtless on the beach. Yep. And, you know, that created an internal tension for you. And eventually you decided, uh, uh, you know, I need, maybe it was a self-imposed red light 
Yeah. Uh, but can you yeah. maybe just unpack that period in your yeah. life? Because I think it can be really instructive yeah. for others. So I'm rolling in rom-coms. I've made four in a row. They've all been hits. I'm the go-to rom-com guy. Um, took the baton from Hugh Grant. I'm, the rom-coms are rent. The money I make on those are paying for the rentals of the houses I've got on the beaches that I'm running shirtless on that paparazzi are documenting me on. So I'm living this uh, life where you're seeing me in rom-coms, which are lightweight and they bounce along. And we all know the story. Guy meets girl. They break up. Guy chases girl at the end, gets her. Credits roll. We know what's going to happen. We just love to see it. They're built to be lightweight. You're not supposed to love so hard or get so mad because if you do, you stretch the bandwidth, the threshold of emotions as you sink their ship. Um, and I'm on the beach. So you're seeing me in rom-coms. You're seeing me on the beach in the magazines every week. You're like, he's living a rom-com. He, he's shirtless on the beach. He's shirtless in the rom-coms too. Jeez, the guy just wakes up in the morning. They just must press record. Well, that aside, <laughs> the success of those disallowed me from being able to do dramatic roles I wanted to do. And certain dramatic roles would come come along and I'd say, look, I know my rate. I'll, I'll take half that rate. I'll take a tenth of that rate. And still studios would go, no, 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 no. You parlay that with the fact that I've met Camilla. We have our first child, Levi. Boom. You have a first child. Man's never more masculine and clear and courageous in head, heart, and body and spirit. And my life was vital, edgy. I loved harder. I got angry harder. I laughed louder. I cried harder. Everything I was, man, I felt alive. Then every day I woke up scared, but excited. My work, I was like, I could read that script and I could do that part in the morning. And I was like, I remember looking in the mirror going, well, before we make a choice here, Matthew, let's be thankful that that's the case, that you're not saying, my life's boring, but my work's great. At least if it had to be one way or the other, be glad your life feels more vital than your work. But what if your work challenged the vitality of your life? And I said, I don't think I'm getting that from, I'm going to get that from any rom-com. So I said, okay, I want to do these dramas. Dramas are more like real life. They have all those things that real life has. And you can, the ceiling of emotion and the basement of emotion can go as high or low as you, the individual, wants to play it as the actor. So those dramas I wanted to do were not coming my way. Studios were saying no. So I said, well, if I can't do what I want to do, what I'm going to stop doing what I've been doing. I'm going to roll the dice here. I'm going to impose a red light on myself because I believe there'll be a green light. If I can take, make this sacrifice. My hunch was, I didn't know, man. I mean, it was like, that was all I could do. I couldn't do what I wanted to do. So I said, if I stop doing what I've been doing, maybe I'll press reset in a way. Now, what happened was just that. 20 months go by, I got no jobs, nothing but rom-com offers, no dramas. I'm now at the point where I'm thinking, I wrote my ticket out of Hollywood. I'm not going back to work at all. But mind you, I was very clear I was not going to go back and do a rom-com. I never wavered on that. I tell that story in the book about them. I got up, they raised it to a $14.5 million offer, an opening $8 million offer. And I said, no, they raised it up to 14.5 after going to 10 to 12. And when it got to 14.5, as puritanical as I'm sounding right now, you know what I did when I got to 14.5? I said, let me read that son of a bitch again. And I read, 
<laughs> and I read it again. And it was the same words as the $8 million offer, but it was a better script, Jeff. It was funnier. <laughs> it was, I saw more angles. I could make this work. <laughs> so yeah. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not so pure, but I read it and I passed. Now, I believe that passing on that $14.5 million offer sent an invisible sort of lightning bolt across Hollywood. And they went, oh, like I was talking about with my dad earlier, he's not bluffing. Yeah. Oh, he's, he's not kidding. He's really not doing them. So then nothing came in. Hollywood said, I called my, my, my agent every week for a year. And every week he goes, buddy, I haven't even heard your name. So I'm like, shit, I'm out. Well, what happened as soon as I shook hands with being out and thought I could go maybe go be a fourth grade teacher or a high school football coach or an orchestral conductor? 20 months later, bring, guess who's a novel good idea for Lincoln Lawyer, for Killer Joe, for Paperboy, for Magic Mike, for Mud, for True Detective, for Dallas? You, Matthew. And I said, yes. So I unbranded to rebrand. Now, I had no guarantee. But I just bet on it. And I said, if my work can't challenge me and scare me the way my life is in the, in the great way that it scared me, then I don't, then I don't want to do it. So I, 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 rolled, I rolled the dice and it, they came back around and sevens came yeah. up 20 months later. The target attracted the arrow, as you say. Yes, sir. It sure did. And you know, yeah. that... You know, and you you know this being uh, practicing Buddhism. Again, that art of life. We're talking about that balance of extroversion and introversion. We're talking about that balance in the middle. That I thought when I went to write this book that ninety percent of my successes were going to be things that I saw where I wanted to go, put the goal line up there, and engineered my way to succeed. What I found out in the book is at least 50-50, 50% were ones where the target drew the arrow. The, Afri the sp My spiritual growth has all come from target drawing the arrow, meaning I didn't know what I was gonna find in Africa. I just put on my damn shoes and put on the backpack and got a one-way ticket and said, I don't know. I'm just gonna go, go put myself in a place to be able to receive, hopefully. The Peruvian trip, the Australian trip, those spiritual ones are when I did not have the goal set. Yeah. Right. But it's hard because the conceptual mind gravitates towards certainty yeah. all the time. <laughs> yeah. And so there is a process of surrender into uncertainty. Yes. But this is where much of the great growth yeah. that springs from. Well, uh, you know, obviously the, the, the role of Rod Woodruff came along and it was just utterly spectacular and obviously seems to, to be a major inflection point in, in your career. And, uh, and, and then, you know, and you described this in the book, but right on the back of Buyers Club, you know, True Detective was released and you played this, this role of Russ Cole, I think. And there was a bit of a perfect storm because after Dallas Buyers Club came out, then I believe True Detective was getting released every yeah. Sunday, yeah. you know, through the, through the award season <laughs> as, as sort of a campaign. Almost. It was a um, great campaign for me. So Sunday night, that, I'm on the campaign for Dallas Fires Cup for performance in Ron Woodruff, as Ron Woodruff. Every yeah. Sunday night, you're seeing me as Russ Cole. And so you're going, whoa, look at the dynamic here. It was, it was a great campaigner for me.
Yeah. You know, you really, uh, you flip the script and, you know, the paradox was that at one point in your life, um, as we were talking about, you know, your roles, um, your life was more daring than the roles were playing. And now your roles <laughs> were perhaps more edgy than your life as you became yes. a dad. Yeah. Three. <laughs> so be careful what you wish for. But, yep. um, but I think this is really, you know, it kind of is this beautiful um, summation in some ways of this first, you know, half of your life, I guess, of, of really getting to that place where you're living your values. Um, and, you know, I, I guess as you kind of ramp into the next season of your life and you assess, um, you know, where you might be the most useful, yep. you know, I'm, I'm curious and I'm, and I'm, I'm certainly, I'm not going to ask you if you're going to run against Greg Abbott right. <laughs> for the, for the governor of, uh, governorship of Texas. I know that that's something that a lot of people have conjecture about. And I also noticed that everything, every bullet on your 10 goals in life have come true. But I noticed also that governor of Texas was not on the list. (laughs) But but as you kind of survey your life now and you assess where your your own utility, um, you know, do you think, you know, you're, you're that someone that can help I don't know, unite America or, you know, we've kind of been in this imposed monasticism of COVID for 18 months. I think people are really tired of the binary opposition all the time. And, uh, you know, uh, where are you in that process of assessing where you can be most useful? I I hear you. Uh, Well said and well asked. Um, I think we're tired of it too. And, it's just, it, it's not a long, I don't think it's a long road. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a policy that changes this. I don't think, I, I think, I truly believe in the capacity that each one of us individually have to be more responsible for ourselves. I understand why we don't sometimes. I understand why I don't. Sometimes sacrifices that can take. Oh, I got to go without. But damn it, I've seen it, and not just with me. That bigger, shinier, proverbial pot of gold that you get with some understanding of delayed gratification for ourselves, selfishly, and for others at the same time. There's so much more that, 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 that unites us. And again, I don't mean uniformity, but there's certain, I, I, lo- I love all the colors. I think, you know, what I love about sports is the most healthy form of tribalism. We're going to have tribes, man. Tribes are great. Raise your flag. Yell at me. Let's go at it. And then afterwards, let's walk across the tarmac, the plank, the field, and shake hands and go, I'll get you next time. Good job. That's right. And, and then yeah. that's life. We, 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 we need some more courage. Do I think self-employ ourselves in, in, into that? We, it, it's too easy. The world lets us, including me, allows us to be cowards with ourselves, um, with each other. Um, we have, I think I would say trust meter as we 
reached upon a few times in this conversation already. Is that, a, is that an all-time low in America? We don't trust each other. What do you have to say? You don't trust ourselves. We become so individualistic. We bastardize the idea of American individualism because it still is the United States of America. When we talk about the United States, hey, land the free and opportunity. I think that right now is a, uh, a, a, a hyperbolic sort of one-liner. What we need to be asking ourselves yeah. right now is, hey, let's before we talk about the dessert, let's talk about the meal. Do we really want to be the United States of America? Let's ask ourselves that question. You don't have to say yes real quick. I know your first reaction is to say yes because you're damn right I'm American. No, think about it because we are not acting like it. So let's just think about it. Let's break that down and deconstruct that. If we can come maybe together and go, I agree on that. Well, United States, everyone's been in a family. There's rules in the family. There's things we got to follow in the family. Can you just go rogue in your own family? No. You got different chores you got to do. You got different things you got to do. You got people got to listen to mom and dad. You got to take care of brothers. You don't have to get along all the time. But we all got responsibilities within this family. We, If we could realize that, but right now our, our, our proverbial boundaries of our own household, as far as we can see, we have trouble seeing outside of our immediate ge de demography and ge geography. And we go like, man, everyone else piss off. I just need, I'm just going to take care of mine at the exclusion of you. You can still take care of yourself and not exclude people. And it's so it's, it's, is it about our attitudes? Is it about how we carry ourselves? Is it about our values? I do believe it is. And I think that's why I say, I don't think it's a poli policy. There's a way yeah. to, and if there's a word for spiritually that people can get a little more, understand the scientific metric of that, because you still, if you say, oh, we need to spiritually come together. I lose half the people in this conversation. Half the people go, ah, oh, geez, you're going to go there because you can't measure it. All right. But is everybody spirit? I believe everyone's religious. Even if they don't believe in God, it, it, religion is a morality. It is, it, it is a seeking to be a little better, to, to enjoy life more. You're making contracts with yourself and others. And that inherently is religious in many ways. Um, Absolutely. And whatever name you want to want to want to call it, um, I you know I say I say prayers, but I do I've done it with atheists, agnostics, and all kinds of different people. And we just because hey, let's say our thank yous. We can all sit there and say something that we're looking forward to, and we got to have hope. If we're going to say hope is faith, and then that starts to get into well, you're talking about religion. Well, yeah, that's why I mean it is all religion. Got to have hope. If I'm going to ask you and you're going to ask me to be more responsible for the capacity I have and my own potential to call myself out and start my own switch on who I'm going to be and I'm going to be a better person, I got to have hope. I got to have something little to look forward to. Now, if we can pave that out again scientifically, this is what you got to look forward to. Understand the value of delayed gratification. Put in this little sacrifice. Here. You're going to get more of what you want tomorrow yeah. if you make a little sacrifice today. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, girding ourselves to those values. I mean, I think, you know, again, as I've been, you know, meditating a little bit about, you know, all men are created equal endowed with certain inalienable rights among those life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Well, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness has become sort of equated with individualism, you have consumption with accretion to one's own personal account. And We've, and we're in a place of dysbiosis where the equality piece, the collective piece, doesn't. we're not giving that enough energy. We're giving all of our energy over here to right. the individual piece. 
And, you know, like we've said, I think, you know, a lot of times these things are, are one in the same. I mean, you know, if my neighbor's daughter can't read, then what good is it if my daughter can read, you know, right. and, and if our, you know, liberation is truly bound. So, yeah, I think it's a kind of a re a reunification yeah. um, or a recollection. Um, you know, I think I heard you actually uh, break down the etymology of religion, and I can't remember exactly what it was. But re ligare, ligare from the Latin yeah. root re and ligare. Ligare means to bind together. Re means again. Mm. Communion. You want to say you're spiritual? I'd say that's everyone I've talked to spiritual. That's what they're talking about. Yeah. Uniting again. Yeah. That's now. Have we bastardized religion along the way over hundreds and thousands? Yes. Let's not blame religion for that. Let's blame ourselves for that. And redefinition. Do we need a new Webster's Dictionary of cause and effect, of supply and demand for what we say? Oh, that's the measure. That's the va- that that has more value. And I'm. How do we do that? How do we get rewarded? Right now, we're in a life where it, I'm not following it unless you're talking about monetary reward, bud. You know what I mean? So, right. okay, yeah. maybe we can use that tool. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, you um, you utilize language in such a way that, you know, words become, you know, vessels for stories, stories become vessels for values and values become vessels for this communion or reunification. And uh, I, I know that you know, uh, you know, Roy Spence, yes. who is also a good friend of mine. And we had a little shop in Austin together for a while. And I don't know if you know this particular story, but since you are a uh, maven of bumper stickers, I think you'll like it. And, uh, you know, in respect of your time, uh, I'll just give it to you quickly. So you're, you're, we're the same age, more or less, and you're old enough to remember uh, that era where, you know, we'd go to Burger King or McDonald's or Wendy's, oh, Wendy's. And, and this was going down in Texas where people would go to their fast food and they'd drive down the highway and they'd eat, you know, their Big Mac. And then they'd roll down their window and just throw the garbage right out on the side of the, on the, side of the road. You yeah. know, and this became an epidemic yeah. specifically in Texas. And, you know, you drive down the highways and people come from, uh, from out of town and it was an embarrassment because the sides of, of the highways were these heaps of garbage. Yeah. And, you know, the state of Texas, you know, it's like, oh, we just can't, you know, can't have this. Uh, this is an embarrassment. You know, there's uh, you know, environmental implications here. And, you know, they tried every single campaign they could to try to get people to not litter. Yep. And I, I'm sure you also remember that campaign with the Native American yep. with the tear, tear. coming down. Yep. You know, that didn't that didn't work. You uh-huh. know? So they went to Roy yep. and they said, Roy, help us with this problem. And, uh, you know, we need a message here that um, that really resonates with people, you know, that that'll get them to stop, you know, just throwing their garbage out on the highway. So Roy went into his woodshed and, you know, he's a marketeer extraordinaire. And he came back out, I don't know how much longer later, maybe a month later. And he's like, I got it. And they're like, all right, what is it? And he said, don't mess with Texas. Yeah. <laughs> and that was it. That, that, that bumper sticker, which is now on every T-shirt and every hat, um, that was originally an environmental campaign 
but it spoke to yeah. people's pride, you yeah. know, of like, don't mess with our land. You know, this is sacred. Um, and I, I think that, you know, you just have that that turn of phrase and that presentation that can cut through uh, to people's values, you know, Allah don't mess with Texas. Right. And I think that's why so many people are probably urging you right. to, uh, you know, to get involved in, in politics. So, yeah, um, I, I, I hear you. Know, you. And what, I don't, yeah. what that did, what his that campaign did, too, was the Indian crime. It was sentimental. The don't mess with Texas was a challenge to you. Hey, yeah. hey. You know, remember Robert Conrad with the Duracell on his shoulder? Knock it off. I dare you. It was a, it was a challenge. Yeah. And it all of a sudden it was a state pride <laughs> yeah. of like, and I remember to this day, you're walking down the street around here, someone drops a cigarette butt. I'm not the only one that's going to go up and tap and go, hey, bud, uh-uh, we, 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 we don't do that. Okay. And it's like understood. Um, it's it, anybody challenged the people's pride. And look, man, we tap, humans tap into the 11th percent sometime. It means we got 89% to go. We have so much more capacity than we give ourselves credit for. And that's why I, I'm with you. I think there's definitely a place to challenge people on a personal level. They have to know that I'm in on the challenge with them because I'm challenging myself too. I'm not speaking from up high like, hey, I got this. This is what you should do. Challenging yeah. me, we need to challenge our, ourselves. I think you know, I, I'm working on this title of Minister of Culture around Austin with UT and with Austin. What do I, what I, what do I mean? That we should all be ministers of our own culture. Take the, the baton. Take ownership of yourself. It, 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 it takes some responsibility, and that that give us the freedoms. But it, it we got to pay a tithe. We got to pay a tithe, not a tax, a tithe. <laughs> pay the duty there's a bit of duty it calls us it gives us self-agency you see it with kids all the time in our in our um in our foundation we have this two-hour after-school foundation uh twice a week and they get our exercise goals nutritional goals everything then we implemented community service where the kids have to go give community service i was like i don't know if that's gonna fly did it fly 100 percent up at 4.30 a.m. to go pack up stuff for the troops or go clean the beach in Venice. And I was like, what? Yeah, because it gave them agency. They wanted, they didn't want the free, they were like, no, give it to me. Now I own this. Now, I, now, I'm, now I'm reciprocating. Now I'm giving back. I've got identity now. Mm. Green light. Green. Yeah. I love it, man. Well, Matthew, I mean, to be continued, I, I so uh, enjoy your message. Uh, and your work that you're doing right now, I, I find it to be courageous uh, because it's a lonely terrain to stake out, uh, you know, some of that middle path that I, I think that you're you're carving up. And um, and uh, yeah, I've got great ad admiration and respect and and um, and share that path with you. So um, well, thank yeah, you, Jeff. Good on I'm, you, man. May I mean. You know, you were asking earlier, what's the next chapter for me? I, you know, I'm calling on my, I'm trying to call on myself to go live out your values, be an emanation of your values, Matthew. You want to go do it on 
a screen that is captured and put on a screen in a theater or a living room? Yeah, that's fine. But what about the big, what about the big shell? The one where the hands of time are recording 24 <laughs> seven. It's live. It yeah. ain't no, it's live. They're rolling right now, man. What's going on? Let's see it. Let's see it, yeah. you know, emanate it, be it. And, um, I don't know. I think that's, that's, I don't think that's just a, a personal calling of mine. I, th I think it's something that everyone can under understand if we, if we, if we look at and call ourselves to, to, to that, to say, Hey, yeah. You know, if people always say, what do you do when the lights are off? It's a good question. Who are you when the lights are off? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a who are you when no one's looking, you know? Um, yeah. and if we, if, Dark if soul of the night, and if we understand that, and also that's where I'm open for giving retribution or that's where I'm open for rehabilitation. If someone, we're going to screw up, we're not going to live up to it. That's okay. The point is, are we trying? And if someone goes, I bogeyed, I did not meet the standard, but damn it. I'm, I'm upset about that, but I'm gonna keep trying. Well, come on then. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not putting you in cuffs yeah. yet. Come on. Let's get back in the game. Let's stay in the game. But if I screw up and don't live up to it and go, ha ha, I don't care. It's on y'all. Well, forget me. I'm a tyrant. I'm not hell. I'm not useful. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and together we need to call people forward and not call people out. My, my yeah. friend, Justin Michael Williams, you know, says that where it's like, you know, people that are out there taking a chance, you know, they're going to step in it from time to time. But you know, having these conversations is the only thing that stands between us and the world our hearts know is possible, you know? And if we get too hesitant or reticent to have these conversations, then the best ideas can't cream to the top, yeah. you know? Yeah. So we need to be brave and courageous in the conversations, but also people need to know that there are going to be mistakes along the yep. way and that we've got to call people forward yep. and not call people out. Being accountable, that's a good thing. But shaming people, canceling people, you know, I, like we're not going to get to the best ideas that way. No, so, no, yeah. I'm with you. Amen on that. I hear you. Hey, we're in the, it's, uh, it's, it, it's not going to get boring. <laughs> no, no, it's not. And I think as, you know, we open up post-COVID, I think it's going to be interesting to see, are we just going to resort back to the old normal? Yeah. Or did we reprioritize along the way inside of this post, like imposed monasticism yeah. where people were doing, had to do more with less? Did we reprioritize? Was there a new frequency that can emerge uh, from this, or are we just going to kind of sprint back, you know, to the old normal, which seemed to be, you know, boy, I don't know, maybe careening off the cliff. So this is why I think it's important. I mean, you know, I, in my mind's eye, I mentioned this earlier, but I was talking to my wife. I was like, I wonder if McConaughey would ever go out and do a couple town halls, you know, right. once the world opens back up in real life and get people up there across the spectrum to tell their stories, try to get people to take a one step onto the bridge, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I would, I would love to, I'd love to be a part of that. So, <laughs> you know, what more interesting and invigorating and awesome thing to be talking about than how can we evolve and become better and more true people, uh, states, countries, species, all of it. I mean, we have if that's if that's our if that if we if we accept that as a personal task, not just you and me, but everyone. 
looks in that mirror and looks in their own mirror and accepts that task. We got jobs. We have job security for the rest of our lives. <laughs> you know what I mean? And redefining ROI, return on investment, you know, and it's okay to say investment for people that go, wait, my investment's me. That's exactly what I'm talking about. You're damn right. That's what we're saying. You are your investment. Now, let's maybe redefine the title of what, what account are we filling up? What account are we richest in? Um, and see where we get paid, where we get paid back and how we get paid back. And the more, the more we can do that and keep chomping the bit there and trying, that's, that's, we don't, I don't think we're going to solve it. The more we can say, I accept the challenge and I'm going to have the courage to at least try that. Well, then we're, I think we are doing what your friend said. We're calling ourselves forward, not out. Mm, aspiration. That's it. Thank you, my friend. Absolutely. Enjoyed that, Jeff. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Matthew McConaughey. You don't have to try too hard to keep abreast of Matthew and his work. I follow him on Instagram at officially McConaughey. Drop me a line any old time at jeffk at onecommune.com and follow my general rantings on IG at Jeff Krasno. That's all from the commune for this week. My name's Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.